Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figger, and Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Duncan Pritchard. His new book is titled Epistemic Angst, Radical Skepticism, and the Groundlessness of Our Believing. It's just been published by Princeton University Press. Pritchard is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. Many of us were introduced to philosophy by confronting the kind of radical skepticism associated with René Descartes. Might you right now be dreaming? Is it even possible to have ordinary knowledge, knowledge that, say, you are right now listening to a recording? Today, many philosophers seem simply to dismiss radical skepticism as unworthy of attention. However, the skeptical challenge lingers and persists. In his book, Epistemic Angst, Duncan Pritchard offers a sustained examination of radical skepticism. First, he shows that radical skepticism comes in two distinct varieties, each of which calls for its own response. Then he offers a two-part solution to radical skepticism, which combines a Wittgensteinian view of the locality of rational evaluation and an epistemic disjunctivist view of factive reasons. Ultimately, Pritchard offers a cure for epistemic angst, but it's one that allows for ongoing insecurity about our epistemic condition. Epistemic angst is a state-of-the-art work in epistemology, but it will be of interest not only to epistemologists. There's a lot to talk about here, so let's turn to the interview. Hello, Duncan Pritchard. Hi, Bob. Thanks for joining me today on New Books and Philosophy. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Great. Um, And thank you, listener, for tuning in. My guest today is Duncan Pritchard, and we'll be discussing his fantastic new book, which is titled Epistemic Angst, Radical Skepticism and the Groundlessness of Our Believing. Now, Duncan's book is a state-of-the-art exploration of an age-old problem or a series or family of problems um, related to skepticism. Uh, That is related to the possibility that, in some sense, knowledge is not possible. Um, Skepticism is often uh, what draws people into philosophy, um, It's a staple of intro to philosophy courses um, uh, in the U.S. at least and probably also in the U.K. and elsewhere. Um, But um, once people get drawn in by the skeptical problem, um, skepticism is then often kind of dismissed or um, uh, ignored. Um, But Duncan's aim is to provide an answer to radical skepticism while also acknowledging that despite Uh, his answer, uh, which he thinks resolves uh, the problem of skepticism, there's still something precarious 
uh, about our epistemic condition. That is, even if we could put the skeptic in his place, um, we're not yet um, uh, in the clear totally uh, epistemically. Um, so uh, there's a lot to say uh, about these issues, um, but why don't we begin uh, with the author himself, which is where we usually begin. So, Duncan, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, so um, <clears throat> I come from uh, the Midlands in uh, in, in England. Um, I think uh, I must have been a very uh, unusual child because uh, I always wanted to be an academic. Um, I remember even at primary school it being the source of much hilarity that when other kids were saying they wanted to be firemen and things like that, um, I decided, I don't know quite how, why, that I would let this, live this life of the mind to be an academic, <laughs> which was particularly odd because... Um, you know, where I grew up, I don't think I knew anyone that had a degree or had gone to university. It was a very rare thing. To, it still is, actually, a very rare, unusual thing to do. So I think a lot of people just thought it was just a bizarre aspiration. Um, but at this point, I, so I wanted to be an academic, but I, I decided that. And I think I just had some vague idea of doing something in the humanities. But it was a, but I hadn't, I hadn't locked on to philosophy at all. Um, but eventually, when I did go to university, um, I started off doing English and uh, had this idea that maybe I'd be an English lit academic or something like that. And then I think like this happens to a lot of people, actually. I ended up taking a, a course in philosophy. Um, and in fact, on uh, skepticism, one of the topics I remember, we, one of the first topics we ever covered. <laughs> and uh, I got completely hooked and changed my degree. And then, of course, it got even worse then. So then I was going back home to Wolverhampton, this little town where I come from. And telling people uh, not just that I want to be an academic, but now I want to be a professional philosopher. Uh, <laughs> I think it must have sounded seemed quite ridiculous, um, but I, you know I stuck with it, and for many years I lived with this uh, this mortal fear that uh, that it might not work out, and I'd have to go back to Wolverhampton, you know, my tail between my legs, and I'd be forever known <laughs> forever known as the the guy that went off uh, got ideas by the station and uh, went off and did a PhD in philosophy, and you know I say that there he is, he's over there stacking shelves <laughs> so um yeah so that's how i got into uh, philosophy and um it's funny this the, the problem of skepticism stuck with me i, I mean the, the main field i work in in philosophy is epistemology skepticism is one of the core topics in uh, epistemology and within epistemology i, I seem again and again throughout my career i keep being drawn back into the, the skeptical problems it, it's something that sort of it sort of bugged me you know um I say in the book, actually, that um, the problem of radical skepticism, it's, philosophically speaking, it's my, my first love and my true love. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's pretty accurate, actually. Well, excellent. Um, so why don't we sort of begin um, uh, with, in talking about the book, uh, pretty much where, where you just left off. Um, so uh, you're not the only one uh, <laughs> in philosophy who... Um, uh, is introduced to philosophy by way, in part at least, uh, by some uh, version of the problem of skepticism, either um, uh, the, the first meditation or something in uh, in Plato. Um, uh, and it seems as if this um, series of problems um, uh, is oddly persistent in philosophy. Uh, it's a long, it's one of the long-standing problems that uh, every time a generation of philosophers thinks that they've put it to rest, somebody else comes up and, and raises it all all new again. Um, so, why don't we? Could, could you say a little bit about what you think the significance 
of skepticism is um, not only for philosophy, but um, maybe in some broader sense. Um, why do you think it's such a persistent issue and what makes it, would you say, what makes it so attractive as a, uh, as a, as a sort of way into thinking philosophically? Well, one thing about it is that it's, um, it's a family of problems. So that's, I think that in part accounts for its persistence because what, what's an answer to one aspect of the skeptical problem might not be an answer to another aspect. So, I mean, we have the Cartesian problem, but it's Kantian skepticism as well, and Peronian skepticism and so forth. Um, but I think the, the, the reason why people get attracted to it is, um, is twofold. I mean, first, because it's uh, a putative paradox. And what I mean by that is that you can state it very straightforwardly in, by presenting a series of claims which, taken by themselves, seem benign, sort of things that you would endorse, sort of things that we seem ordinarily committed to. But when you put them all together, you realize they can't all be true. And I think that's the general structure of a paradox. There's something in our most fundamental commitments that's in conflict. And the thing about paradox is if they're genuine, um, then uh, there's a nice phrase by Stephen Schiffer. He says, genuine paradoxes, they don't admit of happy face solutions. Uh, you know, the only way you're going to deal with a genuine paradox is by denying something you really don't want to deny. Uh, so I think that there's, that's part of the issue. But the other part of the issue, I think, is that um, some of the paradoxes don't seem to have any real, what you might say, don't have any existential force. Like they don't really matter. You, you, you know, one is confronted with them and one's puzzled by them and then one carries on one, one's normal life regardless. So I think vagueness is like this, for example. I the paradox of vagueness is really quite deep and profound. But it's not the kind of thing you'd lie awake at night worrying about. Right. But I think radical skepticism <laughs> is the kind of thing where, well, for me, at any rate, um, and it's funny, I think philosophers fall into two camps here. Some, some, some philosophers, I think, they, they think about skeptical problems as just a puzzle in the same way vagueness is a puzzle. I think skepticism is more akin, say, to the problem of free will. Right. You know, in the, it is the kind of thing which is very, very disturbing that um, it seems like there is this fundamental difficulty in accounting for our epistemic standing of our beliefs. I mean, I, I, there's a quotation I use in a paper recently. It's from um, uh, <clears throat> Graham Green, a Graham Green line in, um, in, in the, the Power and the Glory, where the character wakes up in the middle of the night and, and he's, he's, he's gripped by this fear that all of his money is counterfeit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of the existential worry about skepticism. So we, we trade in reasons in epistemic standings all the while. What if all of this is just counterfeit? That's the worry. So I think that's that's why it grips people in a way that some of the philosophical problems don't. Excellent. Um, and uh, so the book has a, a very um, evocative title on this score, um, Epistemic Angst. Um, is angst what you think the... Um, the person who's kept up at night by skeptical worries um, is feeling, or is that the appropriate yeah, I, um, I, way to characterize the, 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 be, the being in the grip of uh, the radical skeptical problematics? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's why I chose it, to, to convey that fact. That for, whereas for some people, I think they just, as I say, think of skepticism as just a puzzle, something to sort of test, a, something sort of methodological, if you like, a way of sort of testing the theory of knowledge, perhaps, or something like that. I think of it as something that has a, a real bearing on, you know, is, is the kind of thing that ought to give one anxiety. I mean, one way of thinking about this is that, um, you know, if you think of the conditions, I mean, I, I, I don't know what exactly how to solve the issue of the meaningfulness of life or what the conditions are in one place, but it seems to me at least one of them 
ought to be something about our epistemic condition. You know, if the sceptical problem has a grip, then I think it kind of deprives our lives of at least some of the meaning that we attribute to them. So, yeah, so that's why I chose epistemic anarchy. I wanted to get across this idea that the sceptical problem isn't just a theoretical problem. It's something which we ought to feel anxiety about, and, we, and therefore we should, ought to seriously desire its resolution. Well, excellent, because one of, one of the um, uh, things I very much appreciated about the book um, is that but is that this point comes through very clearly that you're uh, you think that this at least this particular um, family of epistemic uh, issues um, does have a um, uh, does raise a problem for um, ordinary life. Um, and uh, it's um, I guess it's be- at least from an outsider's perspective, it looks like it's becoming more common in, uh, in epistemology than it might have been um in the not too distant past to try to cast um, epistemic problems as um, sort of having a normative significance yeah. about how we live our lives. Does that seem right? Yeah, I think that, that is right. Yeah. Well, that's all good news as far as I can tell. Uh, um, so um, let's uh, um, turn to the, the sort of uh, the contents of the book. Um, and again, one of the things that um I really appreciated about the book was um, uh, that you're very upfront about uh, what I think is often um, overlooked by people who want to address skepticism, um, that skepticism comes in different kinds of forms. Um, And so um, you're interested in two primary versions of radical skepticism. Um, One travels via a concern about closure and the other um, gets formulated uh, in terms of underdetermination. Uh, could you um, sort of disambiguate those two versions of the the skeptical uh, radical skeptical problem and, and and tell us how they differ? Sure. So they they both purport to be uh, formulations of a broadly Cartesian skepticism. So a skepticism concerned with our knowledge of the world in general, uh, an external world. Um, Although Cartesian, but without any of the emphasis on certainty or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the conventional wisdom has it that these two formulations are effectively equivalent. So either they just are equivalent straightforwardly, or if they're not equivalent, what differences there are between them from a logical point of view, they sort of cancel out. Now, the the closure of version is perhaps most um, familiar to people. Um, Closure, as I understand it, gets understood in different ways in the literature, but I, I understand it as a claim about how if you've got rationally grounded knowledge and then you make a competent deduction from that rationally grounded knowledge and thereby acquire a belief which is based on that competent deduction, then that belief ought to amount to rationally grounded knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that strikes me as the kind of thing that we, we really don't want to reject because it, if, if it were false, it would just be mysterious. You know, how can it be that you know, a competent deduction, which is a paradigm case of a, a rational process, how could that... Um, how could undertaking a competent deduction from rationally grounded knowledge result in anything that wasn't rationally grounded knowledge? Um, uh, you know, how, but what would be degrading the, from an epistemic point of view the belief that results? I mean, it would just be very strange. And it looks like it would also lead us to have difficulty in trying to um, understand the difference between competent, a competent inference and an incompetent. Well, indeed, yeah. I mean, I think uh, if we denied it, it would be interesting to, of course, I, I accept it, but if you deny it, then I think there's going to be all kinds of uh, problematic consequences of this. Right. Um, but the point is that when you've got that principle in play, then it's 
pretty easy then to um, derive a skeptical argument from it because what you do is you say um, basically uh, we think that we have lots of rationally grounded knowledge on the one hand on the other hand we also typically will grant that we don't have rationally grounded knowledge of the denials of skeptical hypotheses I don't have rationally grounded knowledge that I'm not a brain in a bat and so on and so forth um, and ordinarily it seems like those two claims aren't in conflict I mean you know I know lots of ordinary things like this there's a cup in front of me, and so what if I can't exclude this, you know, apparently far-fetched possibility that I'm the victim of some sceptical scenario? But the problem is when you've got closure in play, it can it acts as a kind of a bridge to connect the one to the other. So, um, you know, you can now say, well, look, suppose you did have that everyday knowledge. A lot of that everyday knowledge that you attribute that we attribute to ourselves is such that it actually entails the falsity of sceptical hypotheses. You know, I can't be sitting here seeing a cup in Edinburgh um, if I'm uh, a brain of an Alpha Centauri. So the one excludes the other. But that means that if closure is uh, is in play, then through a competent inductions, one can come to know, have rationally grounded knowledge of the denials of sceptical hypotheses. Or conversely, if you think it's impossible to have rationally grounded knowledge of the denials of sceptical hypotheses, then it follows you can't have rationally grounded knowledge of the everyday claims either. So that's basically closure-based skepticism. It's a paradox it, which involves uh, an inconsistent triad. It's three claims which are in conflict. Basically, you, we can't be simultaneously true, so it seems, that we have lots of rationally grounded knowledge, uh, that we fail to have rationally grounded knowledge with the denials of skeptical hypotheses, we can't exclude them. And then the third claim is just closure. The thought is, you know, taken independently, all those three claims look fine, benign, in fact. But when you put them together, you realize that they, they're inconsistent. One of them has to go. So that's closure-based skepticism. And then there's um, a determination-based skepticism, which, as I say, most people think or have thought is basically equivalent to closure-based skepticism. It proceeds in, in a superficially very similar way. I mean, basically what it does is it, um, it turns on a principle called undetermination, uh, which on the face of it imposes a, a really minimal constraint on rationally grounded knowledge. All it says is that if you've got... Two competing alternatives, you know, which are known to be incompatible with one another. And in order to have rationally grounded knowledge that one of those alternatives obtains, you better have better reason for that first alternative than for the second. So, so take an extreme case like P and not P. So P and not P is obviously they're in conflict with one another, they can't both be true. Well, what is it? What, what minimal condition might we place on having rationally grounded knowledge that P? Well, one condition might be that you've got better reason for believing P than for believing uh, than for not paid. But the, the point is that principle, which looks absolutely benign, um, if you can then use that to um, motivate a sceptical paradox. So all you need to do is to note that um, as far as most people are concerned, the rationally grounded, the rational support we have for our beliefs in external world claims, claims about my you know, tables and chairs and so on, it doesn't favour those claims over sceptical alternatives. I don't have better reason for thinking that I'm sitting here looking at a cup right now as opposed to being a brain of that and Alpha Centauri. But I know full well that they're incompatible alternatives. So again, we've got, a, got ourselves a, a paradox. That is, we've got a, <clears throat> an inconsistent triad. The three claims now, similar, but not quite the same as before. One is that we've got lots of rationally grounded knowledge. Second is the undetermination principle. And the third is this claim um, about how we... Um, don't have better rational support for our everyday beliefs over sceptical alternatives. And the thought is, 
taken independently, all three claims look benign, but when you put them together, you realize they're inconsistent. And so we, we've got a paradox. It seems we need to deny something we really don't want to deny. Good. Could you help uh, just now, now that we've got the, the two versions? I mean, I, I could see that the 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 um, the triad uh, uh, in the closure version is 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 a different triad from uh, uh, that in the formulating the underdetermination version. But um, could you say a little bit more about how how you see these as 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 distinct? Yeah. So, like I say, most people think that they, they just amount to the same thing. So the standard line, which we get from Bruckner, is that they're basically equivalent. And even people who demur from this, like um, Stu Cohen, for example, and he says, although there are logical differences, they sort, of, they sort of cancel out. So there's not really a difference that we should care about. But some years ago, I, mean, I had a paper where I argued that they, they, they're actually quite fundamentally different. But I don't think I really... Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit difficult in, in words to ex- explain the difference, but roughly um, uh, you could think about the, each of them, each of these arguments is turning on a certain kind of entailment, um, which is contentious. In the, um, uh, in the closure-based case, the entailment roughly is that if, you, if you've got rationally grounded knowledge of, of an everyday kind, then it follows that you know the denials of skeptical hypotheses. That's the relevant closure-based inference that's in play there. Whereas in the undetermination case, the, the inference is slightly different. It's that if you've got lots of everyday knowledge, then it follows you've got um, a better support for your everyday beliefs over sceptical alternative. The first claim is actually stronger than the second. And what I mean by that is that they've both got the same antecedent there. But from a common antecedent, in the first case, we're extracting a consequent which is stronger than the consequent in the second case. It entails, but it's not entailed by. You know, so that I've got better support for one alternative over another from a rational point of view it doesn't mean that I've got rational support for excluding you know for knowing not the, 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 the alternative um, so there's a, there's a logical difference and it, I, it can look subtle but I think and this, this is what I try to argue in the book I think actually what's going on here is that the logical differences here reflect I think distinct sources of, of skepticism I think what's driving these two kinds of skepticism are two very different kinds of claims that are, that are lurking in the background. And I think for that reason, I mean, basically what I try and argue in the book is that, and I realize the listeners may find this quite technical, but here's, here's the payoff of it. Um, part of my, what I want to claim is that we've struggled with this skeptical problem for so long because we haven't realized that really what looks like one problem is in fact two. There are two problems here, which are, they look very similar. Uh, superficially, they look to be about the same thing. But actually, I want to claim no, there's two skeptical problems, and therefore we shouldn't expect a common solution to them. And in fact, as I go on to argue, we need a sort of a twofold solution to them. Right, right. Um, great. So, one more um, sort of question about uh, the setup in the book. And, and again, as um, a kind of interloper in epistemology as I am, um, the the opening chapters were were very clearly written and, and laid things out so nicely. This is why I'm, uh, I want to make sure we get um, some of the architecture on the table before we turn uh, to your um, sort of two pronged uh, response. Um, but um, you draw a very nice distinction and, and elaborate it um, between two different kinds of anti-skeptical responses. Um, and two different strengths of anti-skepticism. Um, you've got um, uh, the overcoming and uh, undercutting uh, responses. Can you 
Um, help us with that distinction or elaborate that distinction for us? Sure. Uh, the basic idea is that when you're presented with a putative paradox, there's, there's two ways to go. One way is to somehow find find a way to um, to explain why what looks like a paradox is in fact not a paradox at all. So, and I think this is kind of the, this is the undercutting response. And I think it's the optimal response to skepticism. Because what you do is you say, well, look, it looks as if we've got these basic commitments and their intention, but actually uh, something's gone wrong here, or there's some sort of trickery going on. Or uh, it could be that there's ambiguity there, or that the, something which is looking like common sense turns out to be the, the product of dubious philosophical theory or something like that. That, I think, is the optimal way to deal with, with paradoxes. The alternative is the overriding response. And the overriding response says, well, yes, we have got a, we have got a basic tension in our fundamental commitments, but we, we have independent reason to, to revise those commitments to, in order to, to evade it. So in the first case, what you're doing is saying there's an obstacle, in this case to knowing, and you're removing it. In the second case, you're basically, you, you, the obstacle still remains. It still is something very puzzling about our basic commitments and how they're intentional one another, but rather we, we, we avoid that ultimately by denying one of them and offering independent reasons for denying them. So if you like, the, um, the overriding response to skepticism is the sad face solution to skepticism I mentioned earlier, whereas the undercutting one is the happy face one, because uh, in that case, um, we don't have to deny one of our fundamental commitments because it turns out there isn't really a paradox there at all. Of course, the undercutting response is much harder to do. Than to right. Do. <laughs> <laughs> and much harder, I guess... Um much harder to do without um, opening oneself to the charge from the skeptical opposition that the question has been begged. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's, it's just much harder because you've, uh, you've got to do a lot, a lot of work to explain why what looked like, uh, you know, basic fundamental commitments that aren't derived. It's, I mean, suppose you take the route that I do where I say, look, what looks like common sense on occasion, actually, it's product of theory. You know, that's quite a difficult claim to make stick because then people might come back to lie on. <laughs> it certainly, certainly didn't look that way before, you know, and, and indeed, just as a point of autobiography, <clears throat> I didn't think of these claims as being the, the contentious ones being the product of theory either when I first came across them. So uh, I think this shows how um, the sceptical problem forces us to think quite hard about what our fundamental commitments really are. I mean, in this case, epistemological um, commitments, but I think paradoxes more generally do that. They make us think again about, well, what are our basic commitments in this particular domain? Right, right. Okay, so um, let's turn uh, to uh, talking about the way that you, you try to make some um, progress against the radical, against the two versions of radical skepticism. And... Um, uh, you consider a lot of and 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 work through um, uh, and turn a critical eye towards a lot of uh, the, the more familiar uh, kinds of anti-skeptical strategies um, in devising uh, your own. Um, as you said, you've you've got what you call in the book a bioscopic or we could say two-pronged uh, solution. Uh, if we're on board with the thought that the radical skeptical problem is actually um, two kinds of you know, two two distinct um, problems. Um, it looks like we're going to need um, a, a two pronged uh, kind of response. So um, one uh, of the 
the positive uh, proposals in the book is a kind of um, Wittgensteinian version of anti-skepticism, um, particularly um, a kind of Wittgensteinian response to worries about closure um, and the way that skepticism uh, um, rises out of worries about closure. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this um, sure. uh, the Wittgensteinian prong of, uh, of of your response to the radical skeptic? Yeah, sure. Uh, just before I do that, I, I was coming quickly on the, the bioscopic thing. Uh, sure. I feel like I should apologize to the listener because it's such an ugly, <laughs> ugly name. Uh, I always hoped that I'd come up with something, uh, you know, a bit more elegant, but it was just kind of, a, you know, it was just something I, I came up with initially and I just thought eventually something better will come along. They never did. And the reason I stuck with it, <laughs> the reason I stuck with it is I kept, okay, I did come up with more elegant names, but they don't, they don't quite convey what I wanted, which is this idea that we've sort of been looking at the problem through through one eye, as it were, and that we need to see it, you know, that it's a, it's a dual problem and it needs a dual solution. So we need, need to use both eyes. So that, that's why, you know, that's why I've, I've got it. I, I realize it's, it's pretty ugly. Okay, so well, at one point you do use the you you, you do use the the one eye uh, version, which um, reminded me of that that line in that Strassen Freedom and Resentment paper where he talks about the one eyed consequential. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, sure, yeah, yeah, so the Wittgenstein thing. So I I think that these two kinds of these two formulations of the skeptical problem that they reflect distinct what I call sources of skepticism. I think in the the closure based uh, formulation. The source of skepticism that it reflects is this idea, which I call the universality of rational evaluation. It's this thought that um, there aren't any in principle constraints on the, the scope of rational evaluations. We can sort of contract and expand them at will. So there may be like practical constraints. Obviously, it may be uh, problems of difficulties in doing how clever we are and how imaginative we are and so on in terms of uh, how we conduct these rational evaluations. But the thought is there can't be any principle constraints. And this manifests itself in closure because what goes on uh, when closure is used in a, in a skeptical way is that we, we move from ordinary rational evaluations, which are by their nature tend to be very localized. And then once we bring skeptical hypotheses, now suddenly we're making these wholesale rational evaluations. And I, I can I grant that it, it, this looks like a harmless claim. You know, why would there be principal constraints on uh, rational evaluation? But what I see Wittgenstein is arguing is He's trying to get us to see that actually the, this claim, the universality of rational evaluation, he's trying to get us to see that that's, that's false. Um, so this is the Wittgenstein of, of uncertainty. Um, these are his final notebooks, um, just four notebooks, so up to, to a few days before he died. Um, fascinating, lots of different ways. They, they weren't edited by him. They're very fragmentary and impressionistic. And it's hard to get a canonical reading out of it, um, although some people have tried but I think there's definitely a line of argument in there to do with um, what I call the structure of rational evaluation. I think Wittgenstein is trying to get us to see that it's in the very nature of rational evaluations that they take place against the backdrop of these fundamental commitments, hinge commitments, as I call them, uh, these basic certainties. And those, that certainty has to be in place in order for there to be rational evaluation at all. And this has a consequence, because if that's right, then... Um, uh, obviously, there can't be such a thing as universal rational evaluations. I mean, because the hinges themselves are, are essentially irrational. They're the things that need to be in place in order to enable rational evaluation to take place. And Wittgenstein, I think, is very clear that um, he sees these basic certainties as being um, they're, they're not optional. 
the visceral animal, he says, uh, they are unresponsive to rational considerations. They, um, they're not acquired in rational ways. They're not things that one is taught. You know, so I have two hands is a famous Morian claim that Wittgenstein seizes upon. Um, you know, Wittgenstein says, you know, no one teaches you've got two hands. They teach you to do things with your hands and so on. So that rather the, the, the hinge commitments are swallowed down in all the things that we are taught. They become the backdrop against which we then undertake rational evaluations in which we believe and which we doubt. So I think Wittgenstein is trying to argue that in order to be in the space of reasons at all, you ought to be the kind of person who has beliefs, you know, offers reasons for and against things, doubts and so forth. One already has to have this backdrop of hinge commitments in place. And therefore it follows that what the sceptic is trying to do, and indeed what the traditional anti-sceptic is trying to do, both those projects are incoherent. So the sceptic is trying to offer a universal rational evaluation of our beliefs and find them wanting. Whereas the traditional anti-sceptic is trying to offer a universal rational evaluation of our beliefs and, and find them in good order. And what Wittgenstein is trying to say is that both projects don't, don't make any sense. And it's also important to emphasize that the claim here is not, it's not a contingent one. I mean, he says again and again that the point he wants to make is as a matter of logic. Uh, that is, it, it couldn't have been otherwise. It's just in the very nature of rational evaluations that they're, they're structured like this. And, um, and, you know, through various examples and so forth, he tries to get us to see that when we shift from these localized rational evaluations that we do in ordinary contexts and start making these universal rational evaluations, it's not as if we've just harmlessly, you know, extended the scope and it's just a matter of degree in terms of the differences of what's going on here. He thinks that beyond a certain point, we've, st- we've, we've started to do something which actually makes no sense at all. It's fundamentally incoherent. And if that's right, well, then the structure of rational, the, the claim that the, the universality of rational evaluation, that claim, is the joker in the pack here. And, uh, and that's what needs to go. So let me sort of just ask a, 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 maybe a, 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 a kind of innocent question. Um, is when, when is, as, as you're reporting, Wittgenstein says that this is a logical point. Yeah. Um, it's a logical point about a kind of evaluation. Um, so uh, um, is this a, I guess I'm wondering sort of, is, is this a point about something that we do, namely we evaluate beliefs and um, uh, there's, there, there's a point where the spade turns in that activity and there's something um, about the structure of that activity of evaluating um, that, that requires that there be uh, hinge propositions? Um, or is it a logical point in some um, other sense that um, it's not merely about evaluations or things that we do? Um, is it a logical point that even if there were no evaluators, there would have to be um, uh, propositions presupposed by um, any effort to well, I haven't put it right. Um, so do you see the, the yeah. question I'm asking? Like, how much is this a point about some activity we are engaged in, namely evaluating our beliefs? One way of, uh, of putting this might be helpful is that, um, that there's a certain reading of Wittgenstein which you find in Strawson in his um, skepticism right. and naturalism, where it's sometimes called the naturalistic or the uh, human reading, which basically takes Wittgenstein as making a purely psychological point. Like it's just like, right. well, psychologically we can't undertake rational evaluations in the certainties have to be in play. 
And it seems to me, although Wittgenstein does make that point, uh, that's just like, that, it doesn't carry any anti-skeptical weight for him. I think he really wants to make the, the much stronger claim, which is that, as I say, it's in the very nature of rational evaluations that it presupposes these hinge commitments. So that there could not be any system of rational evaluation which didn't have hinge commitments in play. So to aspire to universal rational evaluations is like aspiring to a circle square. And, and I think this point is really key to understanding him because, I mean, one upshot of this is that you can't have rationally grounded knowledge of the hinge claims. And that can sound a bit bizarre. But of course, if Wittgenstein, if you take Wittgenstein literally on this, in a sense, it's not like you lack knowledge of them either. You know, it's not as if right. there's something of which we we ought to, we could know, but of which we're ignorant. They're the kinds of things that just aren't in the market for knowledge. And I think this is the Wittgenstein's big idea, and it's the one that it, it's, it's hard to get our heads around. It's, I mean, he says it himself, the difficulty is to, to realize the groundlessness of our believing. That's why I use the subtitle. I think what he's trying to do in uncertainty is try and work through that idea and make, make sense of it and understand why that idea doesn't collapse into skepticism. I mean, Cavell put it nicely. I mean, Cavell, in his claim of reason, uh, he, he says that, um, you know, one of the things that Wittgenstein's, uh, one of the, like a core commitment of Wittgenstein's, this idea that on the most fundamental level, our relationship to the world, he says, is not one of knowing. And I, I think he means rationally grounded knowledge here. And I think that's exactly right. I think working trying to understand why that's the antidote to scepticism rather than being just another form of scepticism is part of the challenge of working through a Wittgensteinian epistemology. Right. So, okay, good. Th that was very helpful. Yeah, I was, I was sort of grasping for the, the sort of um, the question about whether this was a kind of Humean natural belief story or something deeper. And it, it looks like uh, your account of Wittgenstein has it, um, a deeper kind of impossibility of, you know, full-blown universal rational evaluation. So um, it looks like what's at the core then of the closure-based version of skepticism is a premise that um, uh, rational evaluation is universal. Um, what, when you call them, um, the, when you call our attitude towards hinge propositions commitments, uh -huh. um, I take it that they can't be believed. I take it that whatever the, the attitude is towards the hinge propositions on this Wittgensteinian story, those can't be beliefs. That's right. What? So, so yeah, good. So uh, the reason I, by the way, everyone else talks about hinge propositions, and I talk about right. commitments. And right. That, that's because um, I think that if, if you talk about hinge propositions, it gets then the focus becomes on a particular content. Really, when what we're interested in is the distinctive nature of the commitment in play. Right. So that's why I focus on that. But yes, they can't be beliefs, and I think one of the things. One of the mistakes that the commentators have made is to think, to treat them as if they are. Um, so the, what they haven't taken seriously, I think, is what Wittgenstein says about the, the visceral animal nature of these commitments, how they are in their, they're not optional, they're not responsive to rational consideration, so on. Um, if you take that at face value, then you've got a, a distinctive kind of propositional attitude in play. I think it is a propositional attitude, by the way. Some people don't think it is. I think it is a propositional attitude. But I think um, although it shares with belief the, the sense in which it's it excludes agnosticism about the truth, you, you can't believe something but be agnostic about whether or not it's true, because believing is believing it to be true. Right. So in that sense, it's like belief. But it's completely unlike belief to the extent that um, beliefs, at least when as we talk about beliefs as epistemologists, uh, when we're talking about propositional attitude that's a constituent part of rationally grounded knowledge, that, that notion of belief. When we talk about that, we're talking about a, a propositional attitude that has some basic conceptual connections to reasons and truth. 
And what, what I mean by that is just that uh, if if you've got a propositional attitude, you know, of endorsing P such that of being committed to P such that you're carrying on having it, even if you recognise you had no reason for thinking P is true, then whatever that propositional attitude is, it's not a, a believing in this sense. It's a, something else, a wishful thinking or a hoping that or something. And, and that's just a familiar point people make about belief of this sort. But of course, if we take the hinge, what Wittgenstein says about hinges right uh, seriously, then it follows that our hinge commitments aren't beliefs in that sense. They're not, as I call them, they're not knowledge at beliefs anyway. I mean, people use the notion of belief in lots of different ways, but when we're talking about a specific notion of belief that's of interest to epistemologists, it seems to me that you know, hinge commitments can't be beliefs in that sense. And in fact, this is cr- crucial to my reading of Wittgenstein. It's the way, it's how I get a lot of the elements of Wittgenstein's position to square up. Because I think on most views, uh, most readings of Wittgenstein, um, I think they're committed to denying closure. So I think they end up being quite revisionary responses to the, the problem. Uh, on my reading, though, you don't need to deny closure. If you, if you accept that uh, hinge commitments aren't beliefs, and if all you need to deny is the uh, universality of rational evaluation. And, and w- what follows now is that there's a logical difference between universality of rational evaluation and closure. Because closure, remember, is about the acquisition of a belief via a paradigmatically rational process. So, you know, the puzzle with closure would be that somehow you can get to know your, your hinge commitments, you know, via closure type inferences. Or conversely, if you can't get to know them, how, how is it you know anything? Right. But of course, you can block that that, that implication because that on this on this reading of, of hinge commitments, there is no sense to the idea that you could acquire a belief in a hinge commitment, uh, much less acquire it on the basis of a rational process. I mean, rather, our commitment to hinges they're, they're already there. It's, it's already this visceral animal com- uh, commitment that's in the background before we even try and undertake a rational evaluation. So it's not that closure fails; it's just that closure is simply properly understood is simply inapplicable to our hinge commitment. So that's how I, I, I deal with the, um, the closure-based problem. I say that you follow through on this Wittgensteinian approach, and what you discover is that uh, what looked like a paradox isn't really a paradox at all. In fact, but the, the inconsistent triad I mentioned earlier, they're not inconsistent. You can have all three. They're, they're fine. There's no, uh, they, all, all three claims can be true. It can be true that we can't know the power of rational grade knowledge of the denials of skeptical hypotheses because they're hinge commitments, so you can't ask true. Closure can hold and it can be true that you know lots of everyday things. They're, uh, they're, they're not in tension with each other anymore. So long as you get rid of this, this idea in the background of the universality of rational evaluation. And I think Wittgenstein is trying to get us to see in uncertainty through the examples he uses and so forth. He's trying to get us to see that this is an idea that it, that's not rooted in ordinary practices. It's actually it's, it's quite an alien idea once you expose what it is. Right. And it's the sort of thing that we should be dispensing with. Super. So, um, but. Uh, we're not epistemically in the clear yet, at least um, we haven't yet uh, escaped radical skepticism because um, the Wittgensteinian response to the closure-based version of skepticism doesn't really address the underdetermination version. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So you, people have tried to get uh, a common solution to both problems, Michael Williams most notably, but I just don't think it works because all Wittgenstein is saying well, the only point he's making is this claim about the universality of rational evaluation. He's not telling us anything at all about this other source of skepticism, which is what I call the insularity of reasons. So what drives undetermination-based skepticism, according to me, is this thought that um, our reasons that we have for our knowledge, 
even in the very best case, so you know, pick, pick the best possible conditions that we could be in epistemically, it's always the case that our, the rational support we have never favours our everyday beliefs over sceptical alternatives. And what that means is that our reasons are always compatible with widespread error in our beliefs. Um, this is what I call the insularity of reasons. And I think you need that claim in play in order to get undetermination-based scepticism up and running. Most people do accept that claim. Um, but I think it's false. But crucially, um, there's nothing in Wittgenstein that gives you a reason for thinking that it's false. I mean, it could be that, uh, you know, all rational evaluations are essentially local and that reasons are essentially insular as well. I mean, they could both be true. There's nothing in the one that entails the falsity of the other. And that means that we shouldn't expect a Wittgensteinian epistemology to answer both sides of the problem. It's only going to give us an answer to, to one side of the problem. Good. So, um, you turn then to um, you, you sort of pick up a different um, uh, flavor of epistemology uh, in trying to address the underdetermination version, um, uh, which is um, epistemic disjunctivism. Uh, can you tell us uh, what that is? Yeah. So this is um, it's a view. It's rooted in the work of, of McDowell, although um, I think there's a lot of differences in um, in, our, in our presentations of the view. Uh, um, certainly in terms of what we're trying to achieve with the position. The, the basic idea is that um, uh, the, the reasons, so it's a conventional wisdom in epistemology that uh, you, there can't be such a thing as factive rational support, where rational support is understood as being, in an internalist way, as being the sort of thing that's reflectively accessible to you. So, um, you know, either you're, you, you've got an epistemic standing that entails facts about the world, uh, but then it won't, won't be reflectively accessible, or you've got rational support that's reflectively accessible, but then it won't be factive. But what disjunctivism says is, it says, no, that's, that's not true at all. You, um, in fact, in paradigm cases of knowledge, the rational support that you enjoy is both factive and reflectively accessible. And I focus on the perceptual case. I think there are other cases, but perceptual case is the key one for, for the purposes of this, um, this problem. Um, the idea is that in paradigmatically, in paradigmatic cases of perceptual knowledge, your rational support for your belief is that you see that P, where seeing that P is both reflectively accessible and factive. If you see that P, then it follows that P. Um, as I say, this is a very controversial view, and uh, it's a view I, I tackled in um, in my previous book, which is called Epistemological Disjunctivism. And what I try and do there, and I try and further do in the new book, Epistemic Angst, is to show uh, three things, essentially. First, that it's epistemological disjunctivism, it's, that it's rooted in our ordinary epistemic practices. I think if you look at how we ordinarily offer reasons in the perceptual case, we, we offer factive reasons all the time. I, I then argue that the, um, the view is desirable so that it, it can help us solve philosophical problems, in this case, skepticism. And then the third thing is to say, well, you know, given that, why why don't we accept it? And uh, I, I run through what I think of the, some of the best arguments against it, and I think they all they all depend upon um, errors, fallacious reasoning. So the thought is that this view is available, and indeed, therefore, we should endorse it. If epistemological disjunctivism is true, though, then obviously we have to reject the insularity of reasons uh, claim mm. because it, it follows that reasons aren't insular. I mean. Uh, when I'm in the right kind of conditions, then the reasons I have in support of my belief uh, can actually be extremely different from the reasons that I have when I'm being deceived. And in fact, 
the reasons I have will entail that I'm not deceived. Um, and again, this is meant to be an undercutting response because the thought is that it was kind of, uh, there's, there's a sort of philosophical trickery going on here. Where's, where does the insularity of reasons thesis come from? It's obviously not rooted in ordinary epistemic practices because ordinary epistemic practices involve factive reasons. Rather, it's rooted in some some philosophical thought that comes along, enters enters the stage, and tells us that well, we can't take those ordinary practices at face value; they're they're incoherent. You know, they can't be reflexively accessible factive reasons. But if we can show, and I have shown that those reasons for uh, rejecting epistemological disjunctivism are bad reasons, then we kind of go back to an epistemic state of innocence, as it were, where the ordinary practices are fine as they are. And it follows that there isn't a paradox. I mean, our fundamental commitments, uh, of which the insularity of reasons thesis isn't one of them on this view, they're no longer in tension. So we get an undercutting response to the sceptical problem, of, of this, this version of the sceptical problem. So let me, let me just see if, if, if I've got the, um, the disjunctivist sort of thought right. So underdetermination versions of skepticism require us to accept the thought that it's possible for um, me to be in the very same uh, state um, uh, when I'm in um, uh, the skeptical scenario and when I'm in a non-skeptical scenario. That is, um, if I see the cup in front of me, um, and I'm not being deceived. I can be in the very same state, as it were, as when I'm seeing a cup in front of, or, or when a cup is appearing in front of me, and it's the um, result of a of an evil demon or something. And the disjunctivist says that those two states can't be the same. Is that right? That's right. Although, um, so that what, what you just stated is disjunctivism, whereas what, what I the version I have is slightly different. It's epistemological okay. disjunctivism. So I state the view specifically about the rational. You, so it's not a point about your states, uh, uh, like the nature of your perceptual experiences or what have you. It's a, a point rather about the rational support you have for your beliefs. And the claim which you find widely endorsed in epistemology is that in, in the good case where you're not being received and everything is fine, the rational support you have can be no better than the rational support you've got when you are being radically deceived. The reasoning being, well, they're, they're indistinguishable, right? So how can the one be better than the other? And of course, if that's true, then necessarily the rational support you have even in the best case always going to be compatible with widespread falsity in your beliefs and i think that's the that's the move that's problematic and, and that the, we should reject which the epistemological disjunctivist rejects i see i see good um so um uh without going through the the, the arguments that you you marshal in favor of um epistemological disjunctivism um, which are, are are very good, but a little bit uh, a little bit technical. Um, uh, so we've got these two versions of radical skepticism, or two sort of uh, manifestations of radical skepticism: uh, closure and underdetermination. The Wittgensteinian view, um, uh, you argue, um, undermines uh, or undercuts the closure version. The disjunctivist, epistemic disjunctivist view undercuts the underdetermination version. I guess now what's left is to uh, ask you about um, how well the Wittgensteinian and the epistemic disjunctivist epistemologies hang together um, themselves. Yeah. Um, they look like, again, from the point of view of an interloper like me, um, 
they looked at least on on the face of them as as things that might not be such happy uh, <laughs> um uh uh partners um but you argue that they do that they hang together nicely can you run us through that very quickly yeah i mean i think for a long time people just took it as given that they were competing responses to the skeptical problem and part of the problem here is that they they think there's a unitary problem in play rather than in a dual um Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so they look, I mean, the Wittgenstein view looks, I mean, on the one hand, that has a sort of concessive aspect to it, it's saying a fundamental level of relations to the world is not worth knowing, whereas um, disjunctivism looks very much as if it's uh, a very full-on response to skepticism, you know, and we've got these fact of reasons, in fact, that we can cite. But actually, I think when you understand them properly, and when you realise that they're primarily directed at, at different formulations of the, the sceptical problem, then they they proved to be not only compatible, but also mutually supportive and entered in the same spirit. Uh, and this is the bioscopic aspect of the view. So they're compatible because their their scope, you know, properly understood, is one is just a claim about, it's not a claim about knowledge in general, disjunctivism, it's just a claim about the nature of irrational support in paradigm cases of perceptual knowledge. And the Wittgensteinian, it is a claim about the, the nature of rational evaluation in general, but it doesn't tell us anything about the nature of Perceptual knowledge, right? So you can, there's, there's no inconsistency in having both or indeed one and not the other. But when you do put them together, I think they then become mutually supportive. So I think it's easier to live with the idea of, of that rational evaluations are essentially local if some of your rational support is factor. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, it's easier to live with the idea of factor of rational support if you deny the universality of rational evaluations because you're not now committed to thinking as some people think, disjunctives are committed to thinking, that uh, this fact of rational support translates into fact of rational support for knowing the denials of sceptical hypotheses. Uh, and, you know, I think the disjunctive is, is wise to avoid that consequence if they can, because it, it just seems like the height of sort of epistemic immodesty, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, if you put them together, um, you, you're solving both aspects of the sceptical problem. And, indeed, you're solving both aspects of the sceptical problem in a way that's very much in the same spirit because they're both undercutting treatments of the problem. They're both saying that what looks like a paradox isn't really a paradox at all, but rather it, it trades on these theoretical claims that have been smuggled in, masquerading as common sense. And I think that makes them very much natural bedfellows. Right. Um, well, that's great. So um, uh, let me now ask just about the the note um that you sound at the very end of the book because um although you take this biscopic view to be the cure as you say uh in a couple of places to epistemic angst uh you're nonetheless um uh um ready to acknowledge that um there still is yet something um uh, puzzling or troubling, maybe those are too strong, uh, precarious, um, uh, peculiar uh, about our epistemic situation. So you say that the even though epistemic angst is cured, we're not yet back to a position of epistemic innocence. There is this other kind of um, epistemic worry that still is in place that you call epistemic vertigo. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I agonized whether to add that section at the end because it, it you know, I was worried that it, it might seem very anticlimactic. You know, say so, so here's a resolution to epistemic angst and then 
But here there's still this thing over here, the epicentric vertigo. Well, I, I rather liked it because, you know, um, uh, I, I guess it's the temptation of um, undercutting responses to longstanding philosophical problems to sort of wash their hands at the end and walk away as if everything is okay with the world. And that always strikes me as just unlikely to be true. <laughs> so at least one of your readers thought that it was, okay, it was a very good thing that you ended with uh, something a little bit less than just uh, sweetness and light. Yeah. I mean, the thinking behind it was that um, if this resolution to skepticism works, then people who have never engaged with a skeptical problem, their, their rational practices from this point perspective anyway are perfectly in order. So there's nothing for them to have any anxiety about. But the problem is, of course, we're in a different situation because we have engaged with the skeptical problem we have aspired to universal rational evaluations and i think the aspiration to do that is is actually quite natural even though i think there's nothing in our ordinary practices which demand it and uh, even though it's actually there's something dubious about it as Wittgenstein shows i think it's just it's kind of like a i think it is a natural thing to do so what this means is that even once you've resolved the problem then nevertheless there might be a kind of residual anxiety that remains and the reason why I called it epistemic vertigo um, is because it, vertigo is, is I, I think, a fear of heights here. Um, you're, um, you can think of cases where you know full well that you're not in danger. Nonetheless, you can still feel, uh, you know, you can still feel scared and so forth. Um, and, and this is a, you know, this is a, a, a again, famously put it, the, the, these things are, they're not beliefs, they're aliefs, right? They're, they're things that often are intentionally what we believe, these kind of like phobic reactions. And it could well be that if the, if the aspiration for universal rational evaluations is natural, then even once we've got a resolution of the problem, we might still feel a kind of residual insecurity, you know, in recognizing this fact that there can't be universal rational evaluations. You know, that there is at a fundamental level, our relation to the world is not one of knowing. You know, there is, there is a fundamental groundlessness to our believing. I think that could make us feel insecure. But I think we also have to recognize that, that that is just a phobic reaction. You know, that's why I call it vertigo. It's there is a philosophical resolution to this. It's just this is like kind of a, a vestige of our of our human condition that we we're aspiring to something we ought not to be aspiring to. Right. Um, so you think then that um, that vertigo. Um, uh, this residual insecurity is something that um, it would it would be nice if we could train ourselves out of, but um, we might not be able to, at least in the short run. Is that? Yeah, I suspect it may be just the kind of thing that it, one can't get, right. one can't get out of. It may just be, you know, just maybe just be part of our nature that we once we've aspired to something like this, discovering that it's unavailable is going to inevitably leave the kind of feelings of, of insecurity behind, epistemic insecurity. Well, maybe we should, in, in our introductory to philo introductory courses in philosophy, should stop teaching skeptical, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> stop infecting people with this worry. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. Although I, I think it's, it's probably good for people to have. It's I think it's a good anxiety to have. I, something I want to think about actually. Whether there's been a lot of discussion recently about it, intellectual humility, what it is, and what's its value, and so on. And I think recognizing that universal rational evaluations are impossible might be an important factor in intellectual humility in developing it. And I, actually, I think maybe this, this is a bit, um, I, I don't have great textual support for this, but my hunch is that Wittgenstein, um, in many ways, was kind of very anti, 
enlightenment sort of thinker, you know, that he's, uh, you know, he, he's very suspicious of this idea of, you know, of someone being completely epistemically autonomous, for example. Um, and I think, you know, part of what's going on here is, is, is a reaction to that. There's a, there's a very nice book by Alessandra Tanasini from a few years ago where she, she construes Wittgenstein as this, uh, it's called Wittgenstein Feminist Interpretation. But she has this idea of him as this essentially anti-modernist thinker. And it, it, uh, that always struck me as very, very compelling. So I think that, you know, that even if, even if you know, anxiety in general is not a good thing to have, it, maybe this particular kind of anxiety is, is worthwhile. It might be part of a, you know, a good liberal education to give people anxieties of this sort. And of course, the other thing is that this is just one aspect of the sceptical problem, the Cartesian aspect. There's still all these other kinds of skepticism. And I think you can't, you know, Peronian, I think Kantian, very important. And it's difficult to understand the other forms of skepticism without covering the Cartesian. So right. I think it, it'll, always, it'll always have a place, even if we, even if, and I know this is impossible, even if it, people were widely convinced of my view, which you know, I, I'm not going to be betting any money on that. But if, if, even if that were to come to pass, I still think it'd be good to teach the problem. Well, Duncan, you've been very generous with your time. So uh, let me just ask um, uh, one last question, um, picking up on what you were just talking about. So um, now that you've uh, uh, resolved this part of um, the skeptical problem or the, the family of, 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 of problems that go under the, the banner of skepticism, um, uh, what will you do next? So I've got, a, I've got a, a bunch of things on the go. I I probably got too much on the go. Actually, <laughs> I'm afraid I'm a boy that can't say no. Um, but um, various things in epistemology I'm interested in. I'm interested in uh, a new paper coming out on epistemic risk. I'm very interested in how luck and risk relate to one another and what implications that it has for various domains, primarily epistemology, but also domains like uh, law and aesthetics. It's a new new, new idea of mine. Um, and I've been doing a lot of work on uh, epistemology of education. And this is both theoretical, but also applied. I've been, um, we have the center that I run here, the Aiden Research Center. We've got various projects, philosophy in schools, philosophy in prisons, that kind of thing. And um, I'm interested in what the, working out what the epistemic goals of education are, how best to further them, what sort of things might hinder them, how do you develop intellectual character, you know, what's the point of developing intellectual character? Um, you know, practically speaking, uh, putting that in an in applied context, like with, with prisons initiative, it's been it's been one of the most exciting things I've been involved in. Seeing how you can ha- have quite a, a transformative effect on people's lives through teaching uh, development of intellectual character. So yeah, lo- lots of things uh, on the go, and um, uh, and, and eventually, I suppose I'll, I'll, I guess I, I should write a book, another book in epistemology, trying to draw some of these threads in my work together. Once you've just finished a book, the last thing you can think about is the next one. So I know it's always a cruel question at the end of these uh, <laughs> interviews when I say, "What are you doing next?" So like, you, you know, it's, it almost sounds like I'm saying, "So, what have you done for us lately?" <laughs> <laughs> well, Duncan, you've been very generous. Thank you so much for um, uh, for talking to us about your book, uh, which is 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 really um, uh, 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 a real achievement. Uh, it's it's a it's a fabulous book, uh, epistemic angst. Uh, Radical skepticism and the groundlessness of our believing. Um, thank you, Duncan. Thanks very much, Bob. It's, uh, thanks. It's been a pleasure, and it's uh, a, a, an honour to be asked to do uh, interviews this kind. So, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Take care now. You too. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Duncan Pritchard of the University of Edinburgh. We were talking about his new book, 
epistemic angst, radical skepticism, and the groundlessness of our believing, which is newly published by Princeton University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.